in our Bibles towards the back of the Bible, the New Testament, to 2 Peter chapter number 3. And you should also have a sermon notes page that you'll see uh, in the bulletin. It has a little bit of a summary and then a little outline for you to follow along this morning as we look through this wonderful passage. So 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am, stirred, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And all of God's people say, Amen. Well, we continue a little Advent series uh, that I've entitled Living the Light of Advent. And as I've mentioned uh, on many occasions before, uh, the light of Advent is both a past and a future thing. Every Advent, our faith is pulled backwards. It's pulled backwards into human history to the realities that God became human, fulfilling ancient prophecies. Our hope is also being pulled, or better, lifted forward and upward to the second advent, when our Lord shall return and make all things new. We live now in the light of these two advents, the first and the second advent, the arrival of God. We saw a couple of Sundays ago in Romans chapter 8 that the Apostle Paul taught us there that we live now between these two advents in an age of suffering while we are waiting glory. Even the creation itself, the Apostle said, because of the sinfulness of Adam, the creation itself is longing to be liberated from its futility and its fallenness. It's longing for you and for me, for us, the people of God, to be glorified in our bodies, and the creation will follow along. What Paul was saying there is now explained a little bit here in our passage this morning about new creation. 
We saw last Sunday in Titus chapter 2 that we live in an age of deep, deep darkness, of the pravity of a fallen age. And so this season of Advent calls us, between the first and second coming, to live lives of godliness in an age of darkness. As we look back upon the advent of the Lord, which brought us grace, and as we look forward and upward to, again, another advent of grace and mercy and peace for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we turn this morning to another text in the New Testament that speaks of the, the, not just the advent, but the two advents of our Lord. And so we turn our attention to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, in the context here, just briefly uh, to mention, there's a little bit, of, there's a little bit of, a, of a hint here, you can see it, where he speaks to us of these false teachers and so forth. But the context in chapter 2, the larger context, uh, is that just as there were false prophets who arose among the people of Israel in ancient times, there will also be false teachers among you. So we see something here of the continuity of the ancient Israelites and the new covenant people of God. Uh, there's one people of God, and in ancient times, there were false prophets amongst the Israelites. In these days, which he calls the last days in verse 3 of our passage, there are also going to be false teachers among you. It's no different. It's no different for us as the people of God now than it was in ancient times. Chapter 2, verse 1 again says that these false prophets and these false teachers amongst us, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresies are not just intellectual doctrines, but these are teachings that divide, that, that, that separate and even segregate the people of God. Following their own sensuality. Look at that in chapter 2, verse number 2. They follow their own sensuality. So sort of mark that because we see that in our passage here in chapter 3 as well. And in their greed they exploit with false words. Notice chapter 2, verse 3. So this is a part of what it means to live in the last days. Chapter 3, verse number 3. And so while Peter is paralleling ancient false prophets among the assembly of Israel with the false teachers among the assembly now, it's important to note uh, that he's speaking of those who knew the Old Testament. So false prophets amongst the Israelites knew their Old Testament backwards and forwards. They knew the law they knew what were called the former prophets, that is Joshua, all the way through kings. They knew their Bibles well. They knew the Word. And we see that same parallel in our passage, where Peter is not speaking of outsiders who are scoffing and mocking at the Christian faith from the outside looking in. He's speaking of those generously, as we would say, within the church. Those who know the Word, those who know the Bible. Now, we can't apply this, and we're going to do that a little bit here this morning, uh, in a more broad way. Uh, here we live in a very post-Christian society where there are many people who know some generalities of the word. They scoff. They willfully are ignorant of the Lord's promise to come again in judgment. And so in light of the Lord's advent, His first coming, and his second coming, the Apostle Peter exhorts you and me to grow in godliness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ while we are awaiting the ultimate renewal of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. So notice that again. The passage here, as he speaks about false prophets and scoffers and mockers and false teachers and those who are within the church doing this, and generally speaking, even those who might know the word a little bit, even in our society, Peter is exhorting us, just like Paul has done so, to live lives and to grow in lives of godliness, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ while we wait for the ultimate hope, which is the renewal of all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Notice, first of all, uh, verses 3 through 7. We need to know, as the Apostle says here, we need to know the scoffing of enemies. In these last days, there will be, literally, he says, scoffing scoffers. Scoffing scoffers. We need to grasp, as Christians, living in a post-Christian society, 
that scoffing and mocking rarely is just an intellectual thing by those who are scoffing scoffers. There are always, as we say, more layers of the onion to peel. We know this. Our friends, our very own family members, those that we know have grown up in church and have rejected the, the church, they left the church, they're like an onion. And they might come off as very, you know, very cocky and very confident. You know, I've, I've read some books. I've been, uh, I've been persuaded by certain sort of, we'll say, atheists. And there, there's no evidence of the Christian faith. But just peel the layer of the onion just a tad bit, a few layers down, and you, as you know, begin to see that there's more going on with this person than just an intellectual thing about rejecting the Christian faith. Notice what Peter describes that as in verse 3, as there are these underlying desires. Underlying desires. These are selfish and these are sinful desires in contrast to the Lord's desires. In other words, we pray as Christians, thy will be done. But the scoffer, the unbeliever, prays, my will be done. That's the difference. There are these underlying desires as you peel back the onion, as it were. In other words, knowing uh, these scoffers here, these mockers, and those that we might even know, they know at least in general what God requires. There is a God. God is perfect, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. and uh, there's going to be some kind of payment, some kind of recompense for what I've done in this life. Yet, sinners reject that for what they want to do. That's what Peter's saying here. This selfishness of, of one's own underlying desires, selfishness is idolatry. It's the, idol, the idolatry of self. That one does not seek to serve God, but to serve oneself. That's what characterizes our age, doesn't it? The idolatry of self. And this age in which we lived... We're all like fish. A fish swims in water, doesn't even know that the water is even there. If you take a fish out of the water, then it realizes its true home, its true environment, its true context, that it needs the water because that's how it breathes and it filters out oxygen. All of us are like fish. The, the world in which we live, it affects us more than we will ever even know in this life. But it's once we get our, are given some perspective and we are able to step out of that just a little bit, we begin to realize that we too can be affected by the age in which we live. And this age of, at least in our society, uh, in which the self is put at the center and put on a pedestal and we need to serve ourselves and take care of ourselves. This affects even those in the church. We're not immune to it. But especially as, as Peter here speaking about those who scoff and who mock, those in the broader speaking church who are saying certain things about the Christian faith and the promises of God, the age affects them, their own sinful desires. Those who take the name Christian yet who have emptied it of any significance and meaning. And what I mean by that is that trite tautology, that's a logical fallacy, that uh, it's, a non, it's nonsensical. Love is love. That's a trite tautology. That's the, that's the basic creed of our age. Love is love. Have you heard of the Sparkle Creed? Anyone heard the Sparkle Creed? No one's, God bless you, everybody. God bless you, everyone. It's a blasphemous creed that's out there. And I'm going to read you a couple of lines, and there's even, a, there's even a sense of dread that lightning might strike us just in the reading of this creed. This is how bad it is. This is a creed that's being confessed in, in professing Christian churches across our land. The Sparkle Creed. Here's what it says, and I'll just read a part of it for you this morning. 
to illustrate to you that, this, these, that, 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 that those who scoff, uh, they may not even scoff in such outward ways like Peter is describing, but they're doing what they're doing. They're saying what they're saying because of this idolatry of self. Serve the self. Love is love. Here's a part of the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary gods whose pronouns are plural. We, let me just stop there. I mean, come on now. No Christian believes that God has sex or gender. Father-son is, a, is, a, is language of relation. Now, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a man. He's also the Son of God. But God is spirit. And so this is a, a nonsensical uh, imputation of what we don't even believe. And so the response is, I believe in the non-binary God, whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ. So, so far, so good, at least that line. Their child, who had two dads, and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light. White meaning ethnic, right? Meaning white people. And refracts into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the calling of each of us that love is love, and then they add, just for good measure, is love. Love is love is love. And then it goes on to say some other things. Amen. This is a scoffing and a mockery, and a rejecting of the word of God. And this supposed creed is a cover for sinners who just want to sin. People want to put a veneer of God and religiosity over their sin to make them feel better. Why? Because they know there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God. Ask yourself this question. Why does, as the psalmist says, why does the fool say in his heart there is no God? Why does the fool say in his heart there is no God? Why are atheists atheists? Why are agnostics agnostics? The psalmist tells us why. It's not an intellectual curiosity and a philosophical rejection of structures of power and so forth, as we're told today. The psalmist says this, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. No, not one. And so when we hear the scoffing of the scoffers and the mocking of mockers and we hear these sorts of things like this supposed creed that posits the supposed God, peel the, peel the layers back and you'll see what's really going on there. Corruption, abominable deeds. Listen to the stories of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your friends, your classmates. There's usually some trauma of the past that's led to some kind of a rejection of the faith that leads to living a life on one's own terms according to one's own desire. And so Peter says here, these scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. With those underlying sinful desires, we can understand then what verse 4 says, their actual scoff. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep. Notice this is being spoken of on behalf of Peter's putting these words in their mouth, nobody he heard these words or something like that. These are this is a very Jewish uh, response. These are people within the broader Jewish Christian community. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, meaning our ancient forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so if Jesus isn't really returning, because after all, the apostles said he was coming soon and he's not come for 2,000 years, Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Where's the promise of his coming? Right? That's, that's their mock. It's not, again, it's not just merely an intellectual thing. It's 
because they want to cover for themselves. And people say things like, well, you know, maybe, maybe his coming is not so literal as we thought, so after all, maybe his coming is going to be his coming through us. Love is love is love, we're told, right? That's the coming of the Lord and so forth. But a literal coming, come on. And a real judgment, no way. No way. Peter adds that these types live with a sort of cognitive dissonance and willful forgetfulness. Notice verses 5 through 7. A willful forgetfulness about the past. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. Notice that. They deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the, the, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the, that's the creation story right there. Let the waters of the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry land appear. Genesis 1 verse 9. There's a deliberate forget, forgetfulness about the creation, the past. I'm not sure if, you, if you're keeping up with, uh, there was once the, the, the Hubble telescope, and now there's one that is in, like, exponentially better, the Webb telescope. Have you heard of this one? You see the pictures online? Absolutely amazing, uh, the pictures that are coming back to us from the universe. And the Webb telescope uh, discovered galaxies older than the calculated age of the universe. So the scientists tell us that the, the universe is 13.6 billion years old. That's when the Big Bang happened. But now the Webb telescope has... Uh, and they use all kinds of sensors and all kinds of light and all kinds of heat and so forth. There's all these ways in which they calculate uh, distance and therefore time. Uh, the Webb telescope has just discovered galaxies in our universe that are older than the universe. But the theories can't be off, though, right? The theories can't be wrong. And so there are world-famous astrophysicists right now who are, who are positing, well, the whole entire theory of the Big Bang, we've got to throw it out and we've got to start all over again. One of the theories is that our, our entire universe exists within a black hole. And another theory says, well, there's not just one Big Bang, there are many. And so this is just one of many. And so that's why there, are, there might be older galaxies or older material that's older than our, than our universe. And there are all kinds of other theories. There's multiverse theories now and uh, if you go watch your, watch your Marvel comic book uh, uh, movies, you learn about the multiverse, right? This is, there are like real scientists taking this stuff seriously. The multiverse. This is just one universe of many, and there are parallel universes, there are parallel yous throughout this multiverse and so forth, because they don't have an answer. They don't have an answer. They can't explain. Ultimately, where did that stuff, that matter, come from? And if space is created by the Big Bang, the, the, the place in which all this matter exists, where the, what, was, what was that singularity? What was that matter? Where was it? If space didn't exist, where was it? There no, they can't answer. There's a willful forgetfulness about the creation that in the beginning God. We see here the flood story as well, that the fountain of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were opened, so on and so forth, reminding us here of God's great and awesome power as he's the creator. He's also the one who not only gives life, but also takes life. As one of our hymns says before, Jehovah's awful throne, ye nations bow with sacred joy. Know that the Lord is God alone. He can create and he destroy. This is the God that people willfully, deliberately overlook. There's also willful forgetfulness about the future. Uh, these particularly, as Peter's writing, these particularly uh, uh, those with a Jewish background who knew their Old Testaments, they knew the creation, the flood story, and all the promises of future judgment. They knew these things. Just like those who've grown up in church and who've heard the stories of creation and, and the flood, and the realities that we've just confessed in the creed that he's coming again to judge both living and dead. But they willfully forget that fact. By the same word that created all things, the heavens and earth, that now exist are stored up for fire. 
That's an image of judgment. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now this imagery of fire is really interesting because uh, not only is it a, uh, a, a Christian thing, but Jewish, uh, not only the, the scriptures, but Jewish theologians uh, and Christians, but also even Romans, use this image of fire as an image of ultimate destruction uh, and judgment upon the world. But the psalmist says, scripture says, that fire goes out before the Lord and burns up all his adversaries all around. This imagery of fire and destruction, Psalm 97. The prophet Isaiah envisioned the destruction of Assyria by a flame of devouring fire. That's how God is described in scripture. The final judgment is described by the prophet Isaiah as the Lord coming in fire. He came in water in the days of Noah, but in the end, the Lord coming in fire to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, Isaiah 66. That's the chapter that's just before the chapter that is quoted here a little bit later about a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65. But fire is also an image of purification. It's an image of destruction. We see that whenever we have wildfires throughout our county. It's a, it is not an image, but it is destruction. But then what happens once the fire is put out and some time passes, that place in which there was once fire begins to grow. It's also, in a sense, a purifying. The prophet Malachi spoke of a day to come in which God would come in fire, but not to judge and destroy, but to purify. Who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi 3. Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver. So we see here that there is a God. There is a God. He made the world. He made you in that world. Everything in the world made by God, which is everything, has purpose. And that purpose is living in conformity with God and with his desires. Not your own. Now, our desires are the problem because our desires are, the, are what we call sin, the thing that has separated us from the God who's made us and the God whose desires and whose will is perfect. But yet, in our own sinful desires, we've made separation between God and us. But that's what the good news of, of Advent is about, that the Son of God has come to us to bridge that gap between God's desires and our sinful desires. And he calls upon us, he calls upon you, he calls upon me to turn from ourselves and to turn to him. To get back on the right path. To turn towards the Lord. To find in Jesus that right path towards God to renew us and to remake us. To forgive our sins, but also to begin to renew us in our lives. So we see here, that we are to know these scoffers, and we are also to know the character of the Lord. Notice verse 8. Verses 8 through 10. And we can, we can ask ourselves, we, we might even be thinking this, okay, so Jesus is coming again. But why hasn't he? Why hasn't he come? We're reading a story here that's 2,000 years old. He still has yet to come. Why? We learn in this something about the character of the Lord himself. Notice how Peter opens up with an illustration about time in verse number 8. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Notice that this is a simile. One day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. He's making this comparison, right? This comparison, this, this literary, poetic uh, uh, imagery kind of comparison. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Right? For God, all time is just present. 
God's the one constant. All things are eternally, infinitely present before him. And to him, one day is like a thousand years, and, like a, and a thousand years are like one day. Now, for us, depending on our perspective, of course, that one day can feel like a thousand years, and a thousand years can feel like a day, depending on where you stand with God. Moses once prayed it like this in Psalm number 90. This is where Peter gets this from, Psalm number 90. For a thousand years in your sight, praying to God, are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. So he begins with this, 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 this comparison, this illustration from time. Why does he do that? Notice the application, the Lord's patience in verse number nine. Why does he say that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day? Because he's trying to say that the Lord is patient. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet in judgment? The Lord's patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Notice that. Like in the days of Noah, no doubt, there were many who scoffed and who mocked when they heard Noah preaching about a coming judgment, a coming flood upon the whole world. Where is it? How long did it take from the time God called Noah to the time the flood came? How long did it take until that flood actually came upon the earth? Anybody know? 120 years. 120 years. Where is the promise of his coming? Just eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. There's no judgment coming. Then all of a sudden it came. But the Lord was patient, you see. He was patient. Nobody responded. It's Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. No one else responded, but the Lord was still patient. The prophet Habakkuk said this, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastened to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Tell the Israelites this. The Lord's given visions to the prophet Habakkuk. Even if it seems like it's slow to come, wait. It will surely come. It will not delay. So again, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day to God depending on how we feel and how we respond to God, of course, it's sort of relative, as it were. And then Peter applies the Lord's patience towards his people, first of all, but is patient toward you. He's patient toward you. And then he applies it to all, notice this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This should be very simple. But this verse is like one of those insider baseball kind of verses between those who are in the know and those who aren't. Uh, if you've ever tried to keep, if, you're going to, if you've ever gone, ever gone to a Padres game, I hate saying that, I'm an Angels fan, but if you ever go to a Padres, if you have to go to a Padres game, um, and you get the, you get the, uh, like the scorecard that comes in the, in the program, like only a select few, you know, maybe, maybe Danny Miranda, uh, how to actually keep score, you know, how to actually use that little scorecard, like the lines you put on there, the dots, the little numbers. Most people just say, you know, you know uh, this guy came up to bat, he struck out. You know, this guy, he got a single. Uh, he scored a run. You know, he hit a home run, you know, whatever it might be. They don't know, you know, uh, on the scoreboard, the ball gets hit, the guy misses it, and it's, you know, E... E3. The scoreboard says E3, and you know, the kids are like, what's an E3? Well, that's an error on the first baseman. You know, he, he botched it. He Bill Bucknered it, right? It went right, right through his toe, uh, right through his feet. Uh, he, me- he messed up. Uh, so you got to put an E, you got to put a 3. That's his, that's his position number, number 3, even though his jersey number is like 10. So it gets kind of confusing. Baseball has a lot of insider stuff, and so there's a lot of insider rules. And uh, we come to verse number 9, and this is one of those verses where you know, there are some of us who are kind of in the know, like the rest of us just probably don't care. But verse 9 is one of those verses where, you know, it seems like it's pretty simple. The Lord's patient. He's patient towards his own people, toward you, he says, and he's also patient towards all people, not wishing that, all, that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. I think we make it more difficult than it is. Some people say, well, this is addressed to the church, and he's only speaking to the church, and this is only the elect. But the church is not the elect. The church is bigger than that. And he's speaking here in the context of false prophets, like in ancient Israel, and there were many people in the ancient Israelites who were not believers. We saw this in, our, in the story of Numbers and so forth. They fell in the wilderness. So there, there's more going on here than just trying to fit it into, shoehorn it into what we might think is right. So I'm going to quote for you John Calvin. He's supposed to be on the Calvinist side of things in this sort of inside baseball kind of thing, as opposed to the Arminian side of things, right? We're supposed to only think that there's the elect and, you know, everyone else, and that's, that's it. But here's what Calvin said about this passage. The Lord defers his coming, right? He's patient. He doesn't come yet. Uh, why? That he might invite all mankind to repentance. By prolonging time to each person, he, God, sustains mankind that he might repent. In the like manner, he does not hasten the end of the world. The, the Lord doesn't like rush the end of the world. Why? In order to give all time to repent. So again, think of those days of Noah. There is the command to build the ark, and Noah is preaching, we know. But the Lord is patient for 120 years. Only eight people get into the ark. Did the Lord know that only eight would get? Of course he knew that. Of course he knew that. He's God. But he was patient for 120 years. And this preaching of repentance and this preaching and God's waiting and God's inviting and the door was open and the ark was being built. They could have seen it right there. But they didn't. But now comes the eye-opening part of what Calvin says about our passage here. He says, so wonderful is, this, is his love towards mankind that he would have them all, meaning all mankind, to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. God is ready to receive all repentance so that none may perish. For in these words, the way and manner of obtaining salvation is pointed out. Every one of us, therefore who is desirous of salvation, must learn to enter in by this way. So God is patient. He's not sending Jesus yet to judge the world. He's being patient. Why? To invite everyone to repentance, to give time for everyone to come. The door is open. The kingdom is open. It's available. Forgiveness can be found. It's right here. It's right there. It's in Christ. Come. Come. Don't delay. Now, Calvin says this, but it may be asked. And this is where those of us who like to pull out our uh, Bernardinus de Moore textbooks, right, John? And we pull out our, 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 really old, our old school Dutch Reformed Calvinistic texts, right? This is where the question, the, the big questions come up. If God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many do perish? Right? That's a natural question that we all ask. To this, my answer is, John Calvin, that no mention is here made of the hidden purpose of God, according to which the, rep the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin. But only mention is only made of his will as made known to us in the gospel. Verses like this should not scare us as Reformed people, as Calvinists. We don't have to shoehorn this and, fit and, and, and read this out of our Bibles. That he does not desire the death of anyone. He does not want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. We don't have to, to blush about that verse. Well, I have my Calvinist verses and our friends. I got my Arminian verses and then, you know, we're all Calvinians in the end, right? No. Calvin is saying that there's a purpose of God. There's a decree of God that none of us knows, but only God knows. Only God knows how many will be saved. God knows them. He's known them from all of eternity. God knows. That's his hidden purpose. It's not for us to climb up and to pry into the purpose of God. We cannot know this. 
Only God can. He's God. We're not. What we do know is what God reveals to us. That's what he says here. What is told to us here is not this hidden purpose of God, that everyone's going to be saved, and if not, well, how many are going to be saved? What are their names? Open up the book of life. Show me the names. No, that's not being shown to us here in this text. What's being told to us here is what we can know in the gospel. God desires the salvation of everyone. Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of the world. Repent and believe. If you do, you'll be saved. God knows, and God's going to sort it all out in the end. But that's, not, that's for him to do. For us is to merely say, today's the day of salvation. And as long as the judgment is not here, as long as there are no flames burning the entire world, it is the day of salvation. You can come and find forgiveness. God stretches out his hands, Calvin says, without a difference to all. And he lays his hand only on those to lead them to himself whom he's chosen. So on the one hand, God chooses, and on the other hand, he tells us to call everybody repentance. We let God sort it out. And so he's being patient. That's why he hasn't sent his son. He's being patient with us. He's being patient with the world. One day is like a thousand years to him. And a thousand years is like a single day. He's not, he does not wish that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Are you a sinner today? Are you a sinner today? Then Christ died for you. Believe in him. Find forgiveness. Get back on the path to life, and you'll have it. It's as simple as that. But there's also some judgment here, of course, the day of the Lord, one day that, that patience will come to an end like it did in the 120 years of Noah. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This, this imagery of suddenness. The suddenness of Jesus' return will surprise scoffers like those in Noah's day, uh, like those in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Gospels tell us, Jesus tells us. Like a thief who suddenly steals your possessions. Like a pickpocket. Your wallet's there, it's gone the next moment. Maybe not a wallet these days, your phone, right? It's in your pocket and uh, you walk by somebody and they hack your phone and your account's gone, right? In an instant. So too it will be like with the second coming of Jesus. Because when that happens, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so there are scoffers in these last days. But why does God put up with those scoffers or with any of us? He's patient. That's why. Yes, he has appointed a day on which to judge both the living and the dead and to bring a a perfect recompense. But today's the day of his patience. Turn to him. And then he addresses us again. Quickly, verse number 11. Who are we to be? So know the scoffers, know the Lord, know yourself. Who are you to be? As one who, is, who has been saved and who's waiting for this coming, who are you to be? You are to be growing and you are to be waiting. Right? These are the two verbs being used here. Growing and Waiting. We are to be growing, as verse 11 says, uh, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since we know what the end of the story is all about, we are to be growing in godliness. Notice the connection there. Since we know that everything is going to be dissolved, the Lord is coming, judgment is coming upon the whole world, we are then to be a godly people. In our natural way of thinking, we might think to ourselves, we might even be thinking to ourselves today, You know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What does it matter? But that's not how the Lord calls us to live and to think. You and I are to be growing in grace, verse 18 says. Grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's granted you grace already. And Peter says this elsewhere in his writings. Grow in that. What does that mean? Be more and more assured that his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient for you. 
Grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 18. Yes, we are to know more about Jesus, but knowledge in Scripture is relation. Right? It's not just knowing about the Lord, but it's knowing the Lord. Husbands can't just know things about their wife and vice versa. You've got to know who they are because you're one. And so know the Lord. Grow in your relationship to Him, in His grace towards you, and in your knowing Him, and your loving Him, and your relating to Him. We are to be growing in holiness and godliness. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 11. Again, notice there in verse number 14, where he says, Since you're waiting for these, speaking of the judgment and the fire and so forth, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. Again, this is like one of those, for us, kind of an ironical statement, uh, one of those uh, uh, sort of paradoxical statements. On the one hand, we are in Christ without spot and without blemish. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have already peace with God. But then the writers of the New Testament can also say, be diligent. Be diligent to be without spot, to be without blemish, to be at peace. I've mentioned this before. This is the power and work of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, who grants to us all that Christ has for us, it's already ours. And when God looks at you, brother and sister, when God looks at you and me today, when we are in Christ, what does he see? He sees Christ, who is the Lamb without spot, without blemish who brings to us peace. He is our peace, Paul says. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he causes us more and more to want to be diligent, to be spotless, to be blameless, and to be at peace and to feel and to experience that peace with God and each other. So be growing. Be growing in your relationship to the Lord but also be waiting. We are to wait for, he calls it the, the day of God, the day of the Lord, the same thing here, verse 12, verse, verse 10, verse 12. We are to be waiting for that day. Amazingly, look, look at verse 12. Amazingly, he says that we even hasten this day of God, this day of the Lord. We hasten it. That's amazing. We hasten the day of God. We, we, we quicken the time between now and the coming of Jesus. Well, don't, we, don't you and I pray? In the, didn't we learn, what was it, a couple Sundays ago, the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. Don't we pray? Thy kingdom come. Of course, we, of course the king has already come. The kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. Of course, it's God's power and God's ability to bring the kingdom, but we still pray, don't we? thy kingdom come. Didn't Jesus tell us in Matthew 24 that, that, that the gospel has to reach every single nation before the end? Didn't he say that? One writer says like this, one of my favorite, uh, favorite commentators says, if we wish to speed the coming of God's day, we should evangelize the world. If we wish to speed the day of the coming of God's day, to speed the coming of God's day, we should evangelize the world. Pray thy kingdom come and tell everybody about Christ. That's how we hasten the day of God's coming, by doing the things that he wants us to do. And that day that we are waiting for, it's again envisioned in terms of fire in contrast to the ancient flood, the days of, of Noah, all things are going to be set on fire, dissolved. The heavenly bodies are going to melt away and so forth as they burn. But, but notice, this is not an image of destruction. It's an image of purification. Not destruction, but purification. We don't have time, but uh, this is one of the big things about the new heavens and new earth. Is, it completely, is, God going to recre a, a re is God going to create again a new another, a second heavens and earth? Or is God going to, from the current 
original heavens and earth is going to resurrect it. If we think the image is an image of destruction, then we think that everything he's made, he gets rid of it, and he starts again, and he makes a whole brand new one. If we see the image as a purification, which is how I see it, then we see that, the, just, that just as God takes you, dead and lifeless as a sinner, and breathes into you the breath of life, the Holy Spirit, and you come alive. When you're born again, it's a new you, but it's still the old you, isn't it? Just like the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, when his body was laid there in the tomb, wrapped in those cloths, those burial cloths, when he rose again, which body rose again? Did that body stay there and then he created a new one? No, the same body, resurrected in glory. In the same way, God is going to take this creation in which we live, that he once said it was very good, that we've turned very, very bad by our sins, this creation that the, that the creation itself is longing for, to be liberated from the sin that we've placed upon it, from this creation, this very heavens and earth, God is going to purify by fire, remove all the sin, all the stain, just like gold and silver is refined by fire, and he's going to then call this new heavens and new earth. That's our ultimate hope. That's our ultimate hope. The hope of the Christian is not merely heaven. Our hope is heaven, but heaven is merely a temporary place until we are back here on this heavens and this heavens and this earth that's new. And on it and in it is righteousness, wherein righteousness dwells, verse 13. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the end, he will recreate the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 65, Revelation 21. This creation is good. Your body is good. The things that God has made are good. They're just stained. They're just fallen. God is going to resurrect them and make them all new. And so, beloved, he says, verse 17, knowing this beforehand, knowing the coming of the Lord, knowing his coming in judgment upon wickedness, but also his coming of purification upon the world, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Be growing in the Lord and be waiting for the Lord. These are the things that he calls you and I to do. Be growing in the Lord and be waiting for the Lord. There's a lot of scoffing. There's a lot of noise around us. Grow and wait. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would assure us today of your wonderful promises, not just by the word, but also by the sacrament, that we would be assured and confident, be stable in you, that we are found in Christ and enable us by your Holy Spirit to, to desire that something more, that, that holiness without which no one can see the Lord, the desire to pray, the desire to share the good news to those who are lost, the desire, Lord, to wait and to see your coming again. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.